Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Late in the afternoon on June 10th, Deputy Alex Abel and Detectives Chewy and Maxwell pulled up to a house in the town of Millersburg about 18 miles from Apple Creek. The facade was neat and well-maintained. Trim shrubs, folded-up lawn chairs, and stacked firewood gave the home a lived-in feel. A powerboat took up part of the driveway. It had been eight hectic days since the detectives first saw Barbara's dead body. Now they were walking up the drive to Barb Raper's front door, search warrants in hand. They knocked on the door once, twice, three times, but there was no answer. Several minutes passed before Barb came to the door. Her small frame barely filled the doorway, so the detectives were able to take a quick peek behind her. And what they saw made them pause. Every surface was covered in stuff. Toys, clothes, small appliances. Things kind of disappeared in the clutter that filled her home. By all accounts, Barb was a hoarder. The mess inside her home seemed to mirror her own inner turmoil. Welcome back to Case Closed from Macmillan Podcasts, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it. I'm Charlie Spicer. And I'm Christy Westgard. Last episode, we looked at the evidence collected to date. We read Eli and Barb's text trail in the hours surrounding Barbara's murder. The messages helped police build a more exact timeline of the crime, but they also left room for speculation. Then we heard from the children. Through heartbreaking interviews, we learned about Barbara and Eli's relationship from an innocent perspective. Finally, Eli's former lover, Sherry, helped the police by recording her cold conversation with Eli, while Tabitha divulged information about her calls with Barb. It's fair to say Barb was scattered in the days after Barbara's murder. She was calling old friends, changing cell numbers, and having secret barn meetings. Today, though, we're seeing just how unhinged Barb truly was. And we're asking whether unhinged equals guilty or just vulnerable. What happens when a suspect could also be seen as a victim? How does the justice system account for this gray area? In this episode, we're going to follow Barb through two very long summer days. Let's go back to the two detectives waiting at her front door. When Barb finally opened her door, Detective Chewy said hello and asked her if she remembered him. He'd questioned her initially when she didn't know she was a suspect. Barb said yes, she remembered. Then he introduced her to his colleague, Detective Maxwell. Maxwell took over. He told Barb she was under arrest for the aggravated murder of Barbara Weaver. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. 
As they grabbed Barb to escort her to the police car, Barb became very emotional. She collapsed on the tire of the boat trailer parked in the driveway, and she began to ask, can I have an attorney? We'll come back to this very important question later. So Chuhi helped Barb up, which only made her more upset. Through tears, she asked about her children, what would happen to them. He let her know that that was taken care of. Relatives and friends were being contacted to pick her three kids up. They ushered Barb into the car. Chewie sat on the back seat with Barb, waiting for her to settle down. Then he told her, you asked me if you can have an attorney. Yes, you can have an attorney if you wish. Do you understand? Here's this talk again about wanting an attorney. Barb said she did. He then asked if she'd understood the Miranda rights that had been read to her. Again, Barb verbally confirmed. And would she speak to detectives? Yes. As they drove toward the Wayne County Justice Center, the detectives began to ask Barb about that night leading up to June 2nd. Back at the house, the search began of Barb's two-story, 2,500-square-foot rental home. And this should have been a simple task, except for the fact that this house looked like it could have been straight out of the TV show Hoarders. There was barely room to walk. Clothes were strewn about on the floor, the beds, the tables, and the chairs. There were rogue Christmas decorations, even though it was the middle of June. And one room was filled with luggage and empty boxes that reached up to your chin. There were dozens of porcelain figurines of perfect children. The landlord's son told a local TV reporter that Barb was nice, but a little extreme. The Rabers often got a little behind on rent, though they always made it up. All in all, Barbara's may be a bit eccentric, but not off-the-wall crazy. The police gave Barb's husband, Ed, a call. It would take him a couple of hours to get home, but he was worked up about them searching his home without him being there. The police told him, matter-of-factly, A, they had a search warrant, and B, his wife was arrested for aggravated murder. When the search finally wrapped up, the list of items taken into evidence was promising. Two cell phones, three laptops, a 22 caliber Ruger rifle, a Mossberg 20-gauge shotgun, a Federal 22 caliber birdshot rifle, but no 410-gauge shotgun. The police also grabbed some more mundane items, like body care items, a Nintendo DS Blue game player, and an inhaler. These pieces of evidence would be used to help the police question Barb. But first, they wanted to hear her side of the story, starting with when she left her home and her family. Barb remembers sneaking past her husband, who was sleeping on the couch, to get to her Ford Explorer. It was pitch black outside, and the lack of visibility made her worried. She began texting Eli at 2.21 a.m. to tell him it was too dark. She seemed to be backing out of the plan. I should just do it now. How am I supposed to see in the dark? Damn, Eli. I don't know if I can. It's too scary. According to earlier texts, Eli left around 3 a.m. after unlocking the basement door. When he responded to Barb, he sounded nonchalant. He told her to take a lamp, which is Midwest speak for a flashlight, and typed out an affectionate, The two continued to text back and forth until about 4.47 a.m. It should have taken Barb only a half an hour to get to Apple Creek from Millersburg. 
but the timestamps on her text messages showed it had taken her 90 minutes. Something had clearly delayed her drive. The best explanation we can give is that she stopped several times to reevaluate what she was about to do. It had been all talk up until now. It was evident that her delay in getting there, that um, this was not a task easy for her. Here's Greg Olson, who you've heard from in our previous episodes. But as a quick refresher, he's an author who wrote about this case in a book called A Killing in Amish Country. I mean, it's a ridiculous task when you think about it. But she really was urged to be there because she cared so much about Eli. That's the kind of manipulator that he was. I mean, when you think about it, he'd actually had talked to other women about getting rid of his wife, right? His taker was Barb. And that night, you know, when she was waffling and she was unsure if she could even do it, he's on the other end of the line texting her back saying, look, it's uh, take a flashlight. You can see better at night. Um, go for it. You know, love you. All that kind of stuff to urge her to do what she shouldn't do, but she felt compelled to out of her love for him. Um, and, of course, the truth is he's just using her. He's just manipulating somebody so that he doesn't have to get his hands dirty. Once Barb got to the house and parked behind the pine trees, the text stopped. Her memory was hazy from that point onwards. It'd take a lot more questioning at the Justice Center for police to cobble together her story. And Barb fully expected to have an attorney present while she was speaking with them. She told them that she wanted one, after all. But I want to take a pause here and go back to Apple Creek, where a second arrest was happening at the same exact time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Lieutenant Kurt Garrison and Captain Doug Hunter pulled up to Maysville Outfitters in the late afternoon. No customers were around, and when the two got out of their car, they saw Eli's lanky frame moving towards them from the store. Eli was told he was under arrest on complicity to commit aggravated murder. He was handcuffed, frisked for weapons, and escorted to the car. And just like Barb, Eli crumbled. He had to lean against the patrol car for support. The emotional display was witnessed by two of his boys. And word spread fast through town. 
to this day, Eli's arrest has become a sort of where were you when you heard the news moment from his community. Eli was brought to a different wing of the same justice center as Barb. Now let's preface this section, Charlie, because I want to talk about the legal system that Barb and Eli are stepping into. Now the murder of Barbara Weaver is a perfect example of how the Amish and the English coexist, which is that for the most part, they don't. Short of crimes involving murder, Amish bishops are almost always the ones to administer punishments to members from within the community. And rarely do the English step into Amish country. The Amish do prefer to handle things in their own way. But there are certain kinds of crimes, like murder, for which there's no way that they could deal with that on their own. So Barb and Eli are walking into a new world with lots of legal gymnastics that they're not really familiar with. Even if you aren't Amish, knowing the protocol and what your rights are after being arrested is confusing. There are rules and jargon that can be used against the naive. And we see this with Barb. Remember how she asked for an attorney earlier and then she confirmed that she would like to have one with the detectives when they asked her a second time? Well, she didn't realize it at the time, but she was basically giving consent to them to continue questioning her without any legal representation. Rather than saying, I want an attorney, or I will not speak without an attorney present, she had asked if she could have one. The detectives twisted her words like this. She certainly could have one. But she never made it 100% clear that she wanted one. This difference was lost on Barb. The police would later claim that Barb had asked an ambiguous question. But it was an understandable error with big consequences. Since Barb had unwittingly agreed to talk to the police without an attorney, she was brought into the interrogation room. The detective sat her down with a can of pop, or soda, and began to tease out what had happened. But at some point between the car ride and now, Barb's story had changed. Now she said she didn't know about Barbara's murder, so the detectives pulled out the text messages between her and Eli. They began to read them out loud. I was just curious. What are you thinking of for Tuesday? Don't know. Be kind of hard with the kids in there. Yeah, it would, but we know they'd go straight to heaven if it would happen that way. I know. And it's about this time that Barb realizes how deep in the shitter she is. Like, oh, crap. Now they've got her text messages. She apparently starts breaking down. She's sobbing, saying it was all an accident. And she starts giving details that might be true, but also might be false. Then there are the outright lies. For one, she said she got the gun from her husband's cabinet and that she didn't know what type or size it was. But the police know she's an avid hunter, so she can't really play the ignorance card. She also says that when she got to Barbara's room, she didn't go any further than the doorway. She says she just wanted to give Barbara a scare, and that's when the gun went off, accidentally. But police know that Barbara was shot from close range, so she couldn't possibly have been standing that far away and then accidentally delivered a single fatal blow. Through the interrogation, Barb leapt from one version of the story to another. In some, she was a victim of Eli. She was scared for her family's sake, so she did what he said. In others, Eli was willing to pay her $10,000. Or the idea of a hitman was ruled out because it would cost too much and involve too many people. She'd then go back to saying it was all an accident. In one strange rendition, she said Eli had, quote, put down or killed two other women. The whole untaped session lasted just two hours. By then, the police felt they had their confession. It was an accident. 
Barb had said she was sorry, though she refused to write out a formal statement, so she was taken to her jail cell to sleep for the rest of the day. While Barb talked herself into a tangled mess, Eli denied any involvement and said only as much as he had to. And while this is all going on, the evidence against Eli and Barb is stacking up. A computer forensic specialist had started mining Barb's computer for any relevant Google searches and other digital footprints. The physical evidence from Barb's house is also being analyzed. Already, the police know Barb is lying about how the shot was fired. But this new wave of evidence points to further inconsistencies in her story, like how she said she'd driven home and put the gun back in the closet. But the police knew from their search that there was no 410-gauge shotgun in the house. Detective Chewy took these latest findings back to Barb. He wanted to ask her some clarifying questions, and this time he'd be asking them from her jail cell. It turns out Barb also wanted to make some revisions to her story. In this second interrogation, she backpedaled from her earlier confession. Now she couldn't remember getting the gun, and she wasn't sure she'd fired the shot. She explained away her confession like this. She'd only admitted to the crime because she felt cornered. Remember how she tried to ask for an attorney but didn't know she had to ask in a more explicit way. So through the interrogation, she'd expected to get an attorney the whole time. Today, Barb insisted on representation, and that ended the interrogation. In this whole scuffle, one person came across as the fool, Barb's husband, Ed. How hadn't he known of his wife's affair? Was he truly ignorant or willfully blind? After his wife's arrest, his church really swooped in to take care of him. They helped him with his sons and said a prayer for the family. For his part, Ed continued to play the supportive husband. He stood in this awkward middle ground, torn between believing the gossip or remaining loyal to his wife. But Barb left one small detail out when she filled in Ed on the situation. She didn't say anything about her earlier confession to the police. Instead, she was adamant that she was innocent, and Ed was her only chance at getting out. And Ed was loyal to Barb to a fault. He started working to gather up some crazy amount of money, like 35 k for an attorney. And he was the person Barb would call most often from jail. Here's Greg again. Barb's husband, Ed, was seen around the community as, as kind of a sad figure, too. He was somebody who had a wife that was running amok, and most everybody in the community knew what Barb was doing with these other guys. So they felt sorry for Ed, but they also felt like he should wise up. You know, why can't he see what we all see so clearly? I think Barb used that, you know, in her own twisted way of justifying why she should be out with other guys like Eli. She felt like, you know, she wasn't getting what she wanted. From the get-go, Ed struck the police as a bit of a bumbling, clueless husband. He always seemed a little behind the eight ball. The department monitored and recorded all of his calls with Barb while she was behind bars. And a lot of what they heard confirmed this image. I don't know how I want to ask this. I'm only going to ask you once. Now I will accept the answer, whatever you give me, okay? Uh-huh. I am still with you. Did you ever do anything, you know, do anything with him? A long time ago, Eddie. Before you married me? Yeah. But other, more cryptic conversations between the husband and wife made it seem like maybe, just maybe, Ed knew more than he was letting on. Do they have fingerprints? I have no idea. 
I touched it last when I put it in the case and put it in the other place. As Deputy Joe Mullet listened to their conversations, he began to wonder what game Ed was playing at. But that's next time on Case Closed. Tune in next week. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestina. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Festino. Thanks also to our voice actors, Matt DeMaza, Sarah Grill, Robert Allen, Katie Rabitsky, Alyssa Keene, Jasmine Festino, Leon Profiter, Emily Miller, and Morgan Ratner. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcasts.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.